Um, two things I have to say before I start. The first, obviously, very much so, is, is thank you for your prayers over the last couple of days. We've really felt supported by them. Uh, I did ask prayer particularly because I was very worried about taking the funeral. It was a difficult occasion with some potentially very hostile people there and, uh, you know, hostile both because of um, their opposition to Christianity and perhaps also because what they'd heard about me. <laughs> and so that just added to the stress of the occasion. And it was great just to feel so supported through that. And today, although I've not read them all yet, uh, I've had a lot of email messages back from people who were there just enthusing about the funeral and saying how good it was. So that was great. The journey was very pleasant too in the end, and unusually so. Um, it helped that I had a daughter to drive part of the way for me. And uh, it was it was, it was was a, a good experience. Um, and we'll just take the next two days getting over it, but everything's wrapped up and sorted and, you know, that's great. So thank you for that. The other thing I have to say is I only noticed after uh, I'd sent off the video for this morning that there was a half um, drunk glass of beer on the shelf behind me. I'm sorry about that. I have another one here. Um, I have to explain that that was because of my granddaughter, Laura. She has two older sisters who... Amy. Amy, Amy, yes, that's right, Amy. And uh, Amy has two older sisters who bought me this for Christmas once. She thought it was the greatest joke in the world that you've got a beer mug that no beer actually comes out of. You can have some if you like. And so she'd uh, left that just in view behind the camera to destroy my reputation kind of thing she does. Okay, so now we know. All right, uh, let's have a look then, shall we, at Psalm 19, because that's what we're supposed to be talking about. Let's see if I can share screen at this point. Uh, Psalm 19, click on one, share, here we go. Right, let's make it big enough to look at, that's good. Right, we'll read this on the way through. Um, it's a reasonably lengthy psalm, so I think we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at it bit by bit as we go down. And I think one of the thing that common, things that commentators have said about this psalm over the centuries is that it falls very naturally into three sections. The first section clearly is about creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The second bit is about revelation, about God's law. You have a sudden crunch of gears at the end of verse six and a change of pace and subject completely. And you stop talking about the sun and start talking about the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And then that goes on till the end of verse 10. And it talks about the things you can know. You can know God through creation. You can know God through revelation. And then you get to the third bit. And that's what concludes the psalm. And that's what I've called the me bit. And it says there are some things you can't know. <laughs> You can't fully know your own inside. The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's the kind of thought that's going on there. I can know God uh, from his creation. I can understand his word. But what's going on in my own heart, I will never fully understand. So those are the three things, it seems to me, that are in there. And I think if we just read through them bit by bit and uh, study them in that way, that will help us with it. Let's look then at the first four verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech and night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the, all, the world. And uh, this is the first thing, the first way, he says, in which God speaks to human beings through everything he's put around them. Creation has an amazing impact on people, if only they're looking properly. We can see God in the universe. 
And I think there are three points that he makes in these sentences. The first one is this, um, that uh, this is an unmistakable message. Yes, you can miss it if you're a Christopher Hitchens or a Richard Dawkins who's just looking for cruelty in nature or signs of something haphazard or incredible chances and things like that. But for most people worldwide, it's impossible to miss the impression that there is somebody of infinite care, handiwork, worksmanship, craftsmanship standing behind the whole thing. It's interesting that uh, just over 50 years ago, uh, this uh, body was, was, was started up, the Alistair Hardy Religious Experience Research Centre. Alistair Hardy, as you probably know, Sir Alistair Hardy, was one of Britain's greatest marine biologists. And when he was a boy at uh, public school, he, he wasn't particularly religious, but he went for a walk one afternoon and he just had a sudden conviction that God was there. Just something about the whole natural world around him said to him, you know, there is a creator and you're listening to him right now. And he spent the rest of his life looking for the source of that idea. So when he'd made his money and been made a sir and all the rest of it, he founded this Religious Experience Research Centre, first of all at Manchester College in Oxford. Since then, it's been at different universities. It's washed up in Wales at the moment. And it keeps on publishing experience from people around the world, trying to see what is the place of religious experience in human life. And they have done questionnaires with literally thousands of people asking them uh, on their own, has there ever been a moment in your life when you've been conscious of being in the presence, presence of something bigger than you were, something to which you felt accountable and by which you felt humbled? And time and again, ordinary people who've got no kind of religious background uh, whatsoever have looked around to make sure nobody's listening and they said, yeah, actually, you know, once when I was in a field at night and I could see all the stars in the sky. Once when I was on, on, on the beach, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I heard the ocean just rolling in. Once when, when, when I was on the top of a hill, just looking down on nature all around me. Uh, and they quote these experiences of the times when God has really shown his reality to them through nature. It's only one of the ways in which God speaks and it's not a very clear way, but it's one that seems to be unmissable if you don't shut yourself off from it. Of course, if you're a Christian and you're looking for it anyway, then it all gets better, doesn't it? As George Wade Robinson said in his old hymn in the 19th century, earth around is sweeter, heaven above is brighter blue, earth around is sweeter green, something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. And so nature and God come together at a moment that just impacts people's lives. So that's the first thing. It's unmistakable. Second, this passage wants to say it's, it's incessant. It's not just you see it once and you go, oh, right, that's, that must be God. OK. And you go off and, and you've got the message. No, it, it's carry on. Verse two, day after day, the skies pour forth speech. And it's a word used for pouring something out again and again and again, like water coming down a water slide, if you like. We stayed in the fancy room in Edinburgh where they had these taps that were cut back a little bit so that the water came pouring out a, a bit like a water slide and ran over the edge into the bowl. Completely useless, 
but still uh, quite fascinating to watch. And that's the idea that's going on here. God is just pouring out messages. And the more you get in touch with his creation, the more you see what's actually happening in nature, the more you will learn from it. Because he just didn't want to teach you one thing like I'm here. He wants to go on teaching about his nature, his reliability, his faithfulness, his intricate craftsmanship, all of that kind of thing. And you see it all there as you look at what he's, he's left there behind him in nature. I've learned a lot about my brother clearing out his flat over the last couple of weeks. A lot of it I knew, some things I didn't. But having the evidence of everything he had left behind right there in front of me and studying that and thinking, how many more trips to the tip will I have to make? Um, the more I learned about what he was, was really going on with him. And the more you look at what God has left behind in nature, eh, the more you get to understand him. It goes on incessantly. And third, it's a universal message. Their voice goes out to all the earth. The skies don't speak. They have no voice. And yet they do have a voice. And he says, this voice goes out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. It's an effective message, isn't it? Because um, it reaches so much further than anything else that God has to say. If you look at the state of Bible translation today, for instance, this is Wycliffe Bible translations, translators. They say one in five people are still waiting for the Bible in their own language. And of the 7,360 languages that are spoken in the world, 704 have a full Bible. At the bottom there, it says there are currently 3,945 languages with no scripture. 167 million people still need translation work to begin. Now, I know that there are people working day and night to make the whole thing possible. And at the end of the whole translation thing is now within reach. And maybe within 20 years, we'll have the Bible accessible in their first tongue for everybody on earth. That's incredible. That's fantastic. But when you think how long it is since the first Bible society started, God hasn't limited himself to what humans can achieve through spreading his word. He's made himself available in the skies to all sorts of people. And for many people, that's the first step. And for some of them, perhaps in, in parts of the world, the only step they'll ever have towards knowing that the real God is interested in them and cares about them. So that's the first part of it. And then he uses three uh, images, which I think are, are, are quite interesting. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun, he says at the end of verse four. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises, this is the sun, it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. And there's a pun going on there because the word he uses for warmth is another Hebrew word for sun. So nothing is deprived of the sun. Everything the sun has to give is given to everybody all over the heavens. It does a perfect job. Okay, let's look at those three pictures. A tent for the sun, a bridegroom, a champion. What's this picture of a tent in the sky all about? Well, Nahum Sharna was a Jewish Bible scholar. Shame, he shouldn't have been a Christian, but he never was. He really understood the Bible pretty well. Nahum Sharna says about this psalm that what it's doing is it's picking up on mythological ideas that were common in the Near East amongst the Egyptians, the Hittites, all sorts of people, because they all were sun worshippers. And you remember how Moses warns the Israelites at the end of Deuteronomy that when you look up into the skies, in the way that the first verses say you should do, they were not to worship the starry host or the sun or the moon or anything else because they could easily do that. And one of the things that Sam wants to do is to take the words of those pagan sun worshippers and just say, but there's something far greater. 
something much bigger. And he does all of those, the, the sun does all of those things, but there's somebody in control of the sun. So in the sky, he, that's God, has pitched a tent and he's put the sun into it. The sun isn't in command of the show. Uh, this is Sarna, and uh, what he says uh, is this. In Mesopotamia, the epithet hero or warrior, which you get in this passage, is frequently attached to Shamash, the sun god. He was also a warrior god. And the sun god militant uh, portrays, portrays him as a runner. One of his epithets is, he who traverses the way of heaven and earth. A Hittite hymn to the god, sun god, Istanu carries a line, you stride through the four eternal corners. In Egypt, the morning sun is hailed as the valiant one, because its daily rising was seen as a victory over the forces of evil. The sun god is also described as a runner, a racer, a courser, and the great runner, swift of step. He's explicitly said to race a course each day. So it's using ideas, you see, that were common in Near Eastern worship. And, uh, of course, in the Bible, too, the same figure is implied in the Bible in Ecclesiastes 1.5. The sun rises and the sun sets and comes panting back to its place where it rises again. But, of course, in Ecclesiastes, it's not talking about the sun God. And it makes it very clear that the sun is just what part of God's creation. And we are under the sun, so we don't understand God completely. He's above the sun. He's in charge of the whole thing. And that's what Psalm 19 here is saying, that the sun shows power and might. And it's no wonder that people on earth worship it as God. But there's no Shamash in charge of the universe. Instead, it's God himself. So it talks about the tent that God has built uh, for the sun to live in. It talks about the sun being like a bridegroom coming out of his tent in the morning. Well, you know, in those days, um, people were a bit closer to what other people did after bedtime than they are nowadays. And um, it wasn't unusual for the bridal group not to go away to have their wedding on a beach on, in Dominican Republic, but to do it right at home. And so you would see him the next morning. And the bridegroom would come out of his chamber looking quite happy with life, usually. And if you said to him, OK, how was the night? And he said, uh, yeah, it was all right. I was woken up by a camel at three o'clock, but otherwise it was all right. Yeah, yeah, but how about, you know, your wife? Oh, yeah, yeah, she was there. Yeah, uh -huh. You would think there was something slightly wrong with that marriage. <laughs> You'd expect the first night to be tremendous. And that's what happens, says the writer, when the sun comes up in the morning. It's like the bridegroom bursting out of his room. Oh, what a beautiful morning. And on my one trip to Israel, that is one thing I remember. I was there on a school trip and we, we stayed in all sorts of interesting places. We stayed in the kibbutz on the shores of Lake Galilee. Fantastic. The, the waters of Galilee were lapping up to the plate glass window that we sat and had our breakfast beside. Unbelievable. We were in a hotel in the Judean hills, the hills, the mountains of Israel that Ezekiel writes about. Uh, we were in, in, in a Bedouin camp in the desert down near Beersheba, uh, in a settlement down there. And the one thing I remember about all these different places is the sun in the morning was absolutely powerful. And by the time you woke up, it was intense. It was like the bridegroom bursting out of his chamber. Or the third one, the athlete just getting ready to run. Another of my big memories is going to Barcelona in 1992 at the time when the Olympics were going on. I was there uh, to evangelize with a group of young people, but uh, we were able to get into one or two of the events. And I saw faces there I'd often seen on television of the British athletes lining up, getting ready, um, limbering themselves up, just shaking their arms a little bit and their legs and so on. And I remember looking at them thinking, you do not look human. <laughs> I recognized their faces, but they just looked so powerful. 
the glistening muscles, the, 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 I suppose the oil they uh, rubbed on themselves helped, but they looked more like racehorses than human beings. They really did. And uh, this talks about an athlete before the race, this passage, doesn't it? I knew well that a few, in a few minutes after those athletes had done their sprint, some of them would look dead and defeated and dejected. They'd come in last. The dreams of four years had just been shattered, but before the race, they all looked so powerful and so fit. That's the sun in the morning, uh, says this psalm, says David. And uh, that's uh, the way that God lets creation go so you can see that he's there and he's doing big things in the world. And as you see creation, you can see God through it. This is not just chance. This is not just random. This is a handiwork of somebody who has awesome power, more than the sun itself. So the second thing, this is where we shift gear in the psalm, is that we can see God in his works as well. And let's read these verses. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. Now, I don't know about you, but this is the point at which in reading through this psalm, my eyes for many years have tended just to glaze over. And you end up at the end of this long list of words by thinking, yeah, yeah. What he's saying is he likes the Bible. Yep. Mm -hmm. The Bible is a good thing. OK. What does it say after this? Because it just all comes at you at once, doesn't it? And all of these different words. How do you tell them apart? So let's try and work out what he's actually saying here. Is there any difference between the words I've got in red? Law, statutes, precepts, commands, fear and decrees. How do you tell them apart? And why, what different things is he saying about them? Let's try and see if we can do that in a diagram. First of all, the important word in here is the word the law of God, the Torah. Same word that the Jews now use for the Jewish scriptures. And the law to the Jews was everything that God wants us to be. How does God give us the law? Well, it all starts with fear. The fear of the Lord. That's one of the items in the list, isn't it? And uh, it says, doesn't it, in so many places, in Jeremiah and elsewhere, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So God implants something in us. You know, you know, of course, it doesn't mean fear. It doesn't mean being scared of God. We're children in his family. But fear means reverence, a right awe, a respect before him. It just goes, wow. And so the fear of the Lord, having God in his proper place in your life, being reverent towards him, that's the beginning of wisdom. When you fear Lord, the, the Lord, you find that he's given you some statutes. And those statutes, I guess, represent what he wants us to know. I'm going to move that up a bit and see if we can get there. Bye bye, people. I'll have you back in a minute. Um, so God's statutes, the word that's used there is the same word that's used for testimony in, in uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So the Ark of the Testimony went wherever the people of Israel went and the testimony of God was placed inside it. What God had done in the past for Israel and what he wanted to do and what he expected from them. So statutes means what God wants us to know that we'd never be able to learn by ourselves. That's why they kept all those things in the ark because they were so important. They represented ways that God had stepped out and said, let me tell you something because you will never guess this by yourself. So that's the implication of the word statutes. But God also gives us precepts. And precepts are the things that help you to think, that form patterns in your behavior. So that you know that when a thought comes across your mind, 
it's a good thought or a bad thought. So that you know if you have an impulse to do something, whether it's a good impulse or a bad impulse. So that when somebody says something to you, you know how you should react. Precepts are the things that organize your behavior. And so God's given you his testimony, things you would never know otherwise. And second, he's given you his precepts. He, he's told you how he wants your brain to operate. The uh, reactions that you want to develop until they become absolutely second nature to you. Attitudes of kindness, thoughtfulness for others, putting yourself last, um, attitudes of reverence to him, living in the fear of the Lord that you've already experienced. All of those things are the precepts on which God's word is founded. And finally, there are commands. Because even with the statutes, his testimony to the past and his precepts, the general principles that organize your behavior, there are some times where you're going to say, well, now what do I do? How do I know what to do in this situation? And so God gives you direct commands as well. And if statutes are what he wants us to know, statutes are what he wants us to know, and precepts are how he wants us to think, commands are what he wants us to do. And all of that together feeds into the law of the Lord. Now, all of those things, when you take them together, are founded on God's decrees. And the decrees simply means the way that God has organized uh, his universe. And so the decrees represent everything that God wants to happen. So everything that God wants to happen is in his law, what he wants us to be. And we know what he wants us to be because in the fear of the Lord, we feel the reverence towards him. It helps us understand what he wants us to know, what he wants us to do and how he wants us to think. So all in all of those different ways, the Bible comes together like a great machine to help to order our conduct and our thinking and, and, and discipline our minds uh, and, and help us be the sort of people we ought to be. Now, notice what the psalm actually says about these six things, because this is what I really wanted to get to. There's the, 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 the whole thing again. And let's go down the list. The law of the Lord, that's what he's given us in scripture, is perfect reviving the soul. It helps us keep going. You won't make it through life as a Christian unless you're constantly going back to God's law, God's word. Read the Bible and allow it to speak to you again and again, because as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is given by being breathed out by God. That's what the word he uses there, theopneustos in Greek, actually means inspired by God, some old translations say. But the real meaning is expired, breathed out by God. It's as close to God as you can get. It's a strange expression, isn't it? But when you think about breath, you, you can see what's going on there in his mind. Um, breath is a very intimate, personal thing. Uh, I mean, if you've ever been sat on a bus and somebody comes up and sits next to you who's absolutely drunk, and he keeps leaning across you and telling you confidences right into your ear, and you could smell how much he's had to drink that night. You know all about breath, don't you? <laughs> or more pleasantly, if you're holding somebody close to you, a small child or something like that, you can feel the breath on the neck. Uh, it's just a very, very intimate, personal kind of moment, isn't it? Breath takes you really right up and close to somebody. So what God has breathed out is as close to God as you're ever going to get. So the law of the Lord helps us keep going. What's the second thing? The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And the statutes make us wise. They give us information we'd never know otherwise. We find out from scripture things that we could never find out for ourselves. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. 
they give us joy as well. Now, precepts, the ways of thinking, the patterns of behavior that God wants us to follow, sometimes don't seem too joyful, do they? We know what we ought to do. <laughs> it's the only Christian thing to do. But other people are going to scoff at us. We are going to have to pay the cost of doing it. And it all feels as if it's going to fall apart if we do. And so we go ahead and do it, but we're not, we don't feel very joyful. But what this is saying is, in the end, the precepts of the Lord bring us joy because we see our life fitting together in ways it never would otherwise. And when we do go ahead and do what God says instead of what our brain is saying, no, 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 to, then what we've got to, then we realize that we will find joy in situations where we were never expected to find it. We do the brave thing. We follow God instead of going with the crowd. And God gives us tremendous joy as a result of that. So the precepts, the ways we think. Then the fourth thing is the commands of the Lord, the bits where God tells us things that we'd never work out for ourselves. And uh, here he says, they open our eyes. The commands of the Lord are radiant. They give light to the eyes. There are all sorts of situations in which I know the right thing to do because the Bible tells me. I don't have to work it out, figure it out for myself. And I have God's clear guidance and leadership through it. Paul says, doesn't he, in 2 Timothy, uh, Scripture is not only breathed out by God, it's profitable. It's useful. It's useful to, for teaching. It's useful for rebuke. It's useful for, for correction. And it's useful for training in righteousness. And in all of those different ways, Scripture can open our eyes to what we ought to do and keep us going along the right path. What else is there in the list? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. What that means is if you are reverent to God, then often there is only one way to go. You don't spend all your time thinking, well, what's the right thing to do in the circumstance? What should I do? Uh, should I push my own interest? Should I push the interest of somebody else? How do I work this one out? No, the fear of the Lord makes life simple. It's pure. It's simple. Just do what he tells you. Go with that and you'll find he'll do the miracles. He'll bring the joy. Do you remember first miracle Jesus ever did? That was the synagogue at Cana, uh, the synagogue, the wedding at Cana, where he turned water into wine. First miracle in Jesus' career. How did it happen? It happened because his mother said to people who were serving people at the wedding, whatever he says to you, do it. <laughs> that makes life simple, doesn't it? And that's the point. The fear of the Lord makes life simple. And so in the end, the decrees of the Lord, the whole package taken together, what does that do for you? Well, it says here, the decrees of the Lord or the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They give us the firmest foundation for living life that you could possibly have. So that's what this passage is, is saying about the law of the Lord. And then it goes on uh, to just reinforce the importance of these things. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Never set them aside. Keep on going back to them because you'll get more and more and more from them. That uh, phrase about sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Uh, it literally means in Hebrew, the honey of honeys, the quintessence of the bees, the best you can possibly hope to have. And uh, it, there's no way he could say more strongly, the Bible is desperately important. Nature, creation, yes, that will speak to you. But God has spoken directly through his word, and that's never got to be uh, neglected. Right. Finally, <laughs> you reach the third bit of the, the, the passage, and it's, it's uh, fairly short and fairly honest. 
By them is your servant warned, it says. In keeping them, there is great reward. But, and then you have a look at yourself. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. And that's a problem for us, isn't it? Sometimes we wander astray without realizing it. Sometimes we're prompted into doing the, the, the wrong thing when we think it's the right thing. Sometimes we're misled by our own minds or our own sense of self-importance or our own emotional reaction to a situation or whatever into going wrong. And our errors can be committed without us realizing they're even wrong in the first place. And we have hidden faults. We have things that tend to be wrong with us that we just can't see. Maybe everybody else can see that we've got a bad temper or we have a tendency to exaggerate or we're mean with our money and they're always the last to pay for a drink or something like that. And we just don't see it. It's amazing how much people don't understand about themselves, isn't it? You've got friends that you know and you can see things in there as clear as day and they've never dreamt that about themselves because we all live in illusions about ourselves. That's what this verse is saying. Forgive my hidden faults. I'm going to try to understand myself the best I can, but there are still going to be things lurking down there that I don't really understand. Then it says, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Because sometimes temptation gets the better of you, doesn't it? You think, I know it's wrong. and I know I shouldn't do it. And I know I'll feel bad about this tomorrow, but I'm going to do it anyway. Those are willful sins. And they do happen from time to time because none of us are perfectly sanctified. In all of us, there's an old nature that's just ready to leap up and do the wrong thing whenever it's given a chance. And willful sins are when we know what's going on and we still don't have the power to stop it. It's the sort of stuff that Paul's speaking about in Romans chapter 7, where he says, you know, the good I know I ought to do, I don't want to do it. I, well, I do want to do it, but the bad I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Woeful man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you can see the struggle that's going on in Paul between knowing the right thing on the one hand and doing the right thing on the other. So errors and willful sins are all part of the package. And so the psalmist ultimately is saying, listen, please help me in those situations I don't understand within myself to lay a hold on the God of all power, whose servant is the son, to lay a hold on the God of scripture, whose word is the truth and, and, and carries so much wisdom. And then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And finally, it ends with a little uh, set of phrases which you'll find Jews and Catholics and Orthodox Christians and Protestants all use in the regular liturgy. <laughs> You're a non-liturgical church, but I'll bet they get quoted from time to time at great parks as well. May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It wasn't um, uh, the rivers of Babylon that started off those words. It was Psalm 19. And see what it's saying. May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. In, inside and outside, I want to be pleasing to you. Outside, I say things. The words of my mouth that other people can hear. And may those words that I speak to other people be gracious. May they carry the fragrance of Jesus. May they express the compassion and the love. And yet the, the, the adherence to his values that they need to carry. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, said the Apostle Paul. May the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. But also the meditation of my heart. 
What does that mean? Well, literally in Hebrew, it means the murmurings of my heart. We're not talking about what here medically in, in, in our time is called a heart murmur. We're just talking about the fact that always inside you at the deepest level, you're having a dialogue with yourself. There are things going on inside you. And you may be saying something quite different with your mouth from what your heart is murmuring. <laughs> we all know what that's like when you put on a smile and say, hello, how are you? And inside you're thinking, oh, not you again. <laughs> it's too easy, isn't it? It's too possible. And uh, the psalmist says, look, you see everything. You are the God of the Bible. You're the God of the universe. Uh, I can see you all over the place. But what I am inside and outside is just known to you. And so may the words of my mouth and the murmuring of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, because you are my rock. Interesting that John said that in his prayer right at the start. The one I can depend on, the one who is always there for me. But you're not just like a rock fixed there by the seaside who's never going anywhere. You are also my redeemer. You're something fixed and set that I can cling on to that will never change. But you're also my redeemer who will step in and help me in real time in the real world. So that's Psalm 19. Can we just pray to finish with? Would that be okay? Okay, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible psalm that you've given us. Thank you for all that you want us to teach us through it. Thank you for the way it connects up with so many other parts of Scripture too. Psalm 119 that talks about your word and uses all of these words about it as well. Second uh, Timothy 3 that we've spoken about. Father, help us to value the different ways in which you speak to us. Help us never get away from your word, the Bible, but make it the centre of our lives. At the same time, open our eyes so that we can see you and everything that's happening around us too. And especially in the wonders of your creation, the regularity of it, the beauty of it, the, the, the power of it, the, the, the sheer magnificence that hints at the magnificence that lies behind it, that one day we will see. And may we inside and out, in the words of our mouths and the murmurings of our hearts, be acceptable. Because you are a rock and you are the one who saves us, our Redeemer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.